I don't buy every conspiracy theory out there. In fact, you might say I'm a curious skeptic. But there is just enough evidence to consider the possibility that the powers that be are manipulating us like so many pawns on a chessboard. That's why we hear the theories out on Jim Harold's Conspiracy Corner. Welcome to the Conspiracy Corner. I am Jim Harold. So glad to be with you. And tonight I am excited because we're going to cover an area that is the subject of what I would probably think is a lot of misconceptions, and that's the area of masonry. And we have an expert on the line. His name is Robert W. Sullivan IV, and he has a book out called The Royal Ark of Enoch, The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism. And one reason I'm really glad we have Robert on the line tonight is that he is actually a Mason and steeped in the history of this subject uh, much more than most. Robert W. Sullivan IV is a philosopher, a historian, an antiquarian, a jurist, theologian, writer, and lawyer. The Royal Ark of Enoch is his first published work and is a result of 20 years of research. Robert received his BA from Gettysburg College in 1995, having spent his entire junior year studying European history at St. Catherine's College, Oxford University. He received his GD from Widner University in 2000. He studied international law and jurisprudence at Trinity College, Oxford University. He is also a Freemason, having joined Amicable St. John's Lodge Number no. 25 in Baltimore, Maryland in 1997. He became a 32nd degree Scottish Rite Mason in 1999. He's a lifelong resident of Maryland, and he resides in Baltimore. Robert W. Sullivan IV, welcome to the program. Well, hello, Jim. Thanks for having me on, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Well, we're glad to talk to you because, again, as I said, when those of us who are not Masons, I can speak for myself, and I think many people have a similar thought, they they see it as this kind of, I'll be honest with you, maybe a little bit strange, a little bit of esoteric, something they don't understand, what kind of strange things go on behind uh, closed doors. So I love to have the opportunity to speak to you as a Mason. Um, if you had to kind of, and again, it's a huge subject, but what is being a Mason all about? The straight scoop, uh, giving it uh, right from the horse's mouth, as it were. Well, being a Mason, to, to answer your question, and I'm not going to try to be dodgy with you, it's really, um, you're going to get a different answer from every Mason you ask. Um, um, in a nutshell, what it means to be a Mason is, is a completely subjective answer. Um, so it means different things to different people. Um, I can tell you for me personally, it was a chance um, that I relished to join. I had a long um, history of Masons in my family. And um, as you said in your introduction, I became one in 1997. Um, the, the general thinking is, I mean, it's somewhat changed a little bit of recent, but when I joined, you had to, in order to join a Masonic Lodge, you had to ask to join. You may have heard the expression, to be one, ask one. Um, so I did. I, 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 a friend of my mother and father was a Mason. I asked him, I said, hey, I, you know, this is something I've always just been kind of interested in, um, just even going back as a child. And um, in a nutshell, for me personally, like what it means is, for me personally, it was sort of this concept of discovering this sort of um, uh, almost like gnosis or, or personal wisdom. And it put me on a track to finding, you know, you know, you know, what these symbols meant, what the rituals meant. 
Um, you know, and for me, it was really just like a path of knowledge. Um, but again, when you ask what it's to, what it means to be a Mason, you're going to, you know, you could ask another, you know, 500 Masons and it may tell you something else completely different. But for me, it was sort of this just personal awakening, the sort of enlightenment that I had. And um, it was really sort of being a Mason. It put me on this path. And it, without question, um, you know, played a huge role in the publication of my book. So going back to history, can you talk to us a little bit about the origins of Masonry? Where did it come from? Who founded it? Uh, what were some of their guiding principles in, in putting this, uh, this movement together, which has lasted uh, for years and years now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, masonry, modern masonry, how, how old it is, is is completely debatable. And again, you're going to get different answers from de- different people. Mod- modern Freemasonry, as it exists today, was born in in, in England um, in 1717 when these Masonic um, uh, lodges came together and formed uh, this Grand Lodge. Um, this is 1717, and this is, of course, masonry as it is today. Um, you know, depending on who you talk to, some people suggest that it, it, its true origins lie with these medieval stone builders, these Germanic medieval stone building builders who were constructing, um, you know, the Gothic cathedrals of Europe. Um, and they contain, you know, they possess these secrets that, you know, was handed down to them through, you know, what you would want to call biblical, um, you know, you know, Masons, you know, some people tie it all the way back, going back to the Temple of Zerubbabel, or excuse me, the Temple of Babel. Um, this is, of course, very speculative, but, um, you know, it's, it's sort of generally traced to this concept of these medieval um, stonemasons who possess these sort of, you know, secret techniques of building. Um, and, you know, a lot of masonry contains, um, you know, and again, this is just modern masonry, um, it really embraces um, traditions coming out of the Enlightenment, such as, you know, um, equality, freedom, universal brotherhood. Um, and the, these qualities from the Enlightenment are being lifted from the Renaissance. Um, and, and really, when you get into the Renaissance, you're dealing with what's called the Hermetic tradition, um, these concepts of, um, you know, Enlightenment, of, um, you know, this sort of godly divine knowledge that mankind cannot be God, but can kind of try to be like God, um, and you'll find this in the work of the uh, of Renaissance masters such as um, Giovanni Piccadilla Manarola, Marcello Ficino, um, and these philosophies are being carried forward into the Enlightenment, and Masonry embraces a lot of them. I need to point out that you know when I'm talking right now, I'm really considering talking about what's called Blue Lodge Freemasonry, um, and this is what you would call your first three degrees of Masonry. This is entered apprentice, um, fellow craft, and master Mason. Um, and, you know, it's the Master Mason degree that basically ends, you know, once you become a Master Mason, once you go through the ritual, you know, you are, you are Freemason. Um, when you get into concepts, and my book delves into this, of what's called the higher degrees of Freemasonry, you have a bit of a split um, from the Blue Lodge. Um, and it, it, it's definitely a, a controversial subject matter because the, the higher degrees... Um, these are coming out of France in the 1740s and 1750s. And as we were just talking about, like with Blue Lodge Freemason, where you get these, um, you know, you know, um, sentiments of equality, universal brotherhood, things of that nature. In the higher degrees, you have a bit of a contradiction um, where you have concepts of papal monarchy, um, of, you know, religious tradition um, being expressed. And it's definitely a bit of a contradiction. So, you know, when you're Blue Lodge, you have these, these themes of universal brotherhood and equality, but in the higher degrees, you have more of a theme of royalty, of monarchy, 
Um, and, you know, the, the higher degrees have a bit of a different tradition than the Blue Lodge. Now, that's interesting you mentioned about the kind of split between the lower levels and the higher levels of masonry. Um, sometimes when people talk conspiracy, for example, they say, oh, yes, the Masons. At the lower levels, it's, uh, you know, doing community things and uh, marching in parades or whatever, and, 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 and just it's a, it's a club. But once you get to the higher levels, that's where the real nefarious activity is going on that these higher levels have the all these secrets and they're up to uh, uh, manipulation of uh, uh, of leadership and, and, and things i'm not saying i'm saying that but sometimes you'll hear this sure. kind of thing um now it's interesting you say there is a difference do you think that maybe kind of that misconception is because there is really a difference but people are mistaking what the difference is yeah i definitely would agree with that um the 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 the, it, it, the 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 origins of the higher degrees are um, definitely more controversial than the blue lodge traditions. But when you get into the concepts of the higher degrees, what you really have what you really have was, and this is in the tradition of the United States, and where you know I think where people are saying like, oh, you know, the higher degrees, this is where all the action is. There's some truth to that in in the in 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 the early nineteenth um, century and the late eighteenth century in the United States, and the reason for that is because masonry in the United States fails to develop a united Grand Lodge of the United States. Um, what you have in America is the each state, you know, each one of the states has its own Grand Lodge beholden only to itself. So, for example. I'm here in Baltimore. I'm, I'm, you know, with the Grand Lodge of Maryland. If someone was in New York, they'd be part of the Grand Lodge of New York. If you were in Delaware, you'd be the Grand Lodge of Delaware. The Grand Lodge of Maryland cannot dictate um, anything to any of these other lodges, no more than the Grand Lodge of New York can dictate to, you know, the, the Grand Lodge of Maryland. But when you get into the higher degrees, what, 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 it, what it was was, and this, you know, is again going back to the early 19th century, it was a way for Masons across state lines to interact and to be able to influence each other without having to worry about basically the Blue Lodge activity. So in the, in, in the development of America, and, you know, you get into the late 18th, early 19th century, what the higher degree served as was a vehicle for Masons to interact with each other and influence each other both politically, socially, and economically across state lines due to masonry's failure to develop a Grand Lodge. Um, and it was in America, and this my book documents this, that up until around 1820, you know, the mid-1820s, that really in the American tradition, that the high degree that was really the penultimate degree was the Royal Arch degree. So you had basically these Royal Arch Masons, um, you know, interacting with each other across state lines where they were allowed to do so, where in Blue Lodge, you're sort of beholden to your state lodge. Um, this this concept and it's carried on today. Um, not that it's really conspiratorial or anything, but um, what happens is in 1826 you have something called the William Morgan affair, um, and this is really one of the backbreakers of Freemasonry, where this guy um, in in Upper State New York is, is trying to expose you know Masonic secrets, um, and, and you know as the story goes, he's ultimately killed in a, in a conspiracy allegedly by these Royal Arch Masons for you know trying to stop him from revealing uh, these secrets. But what it does is it really breaks you know breaks the back of Freemasonry, where 
you know, pr- prior to this incident, masonry was sort of looked at with this, you know, patriotic institution, you know, the founding fathers were masons, um, or a lot of them were at any rate. But after the William Morgan affair, masonry was looked at like a subterfuge organization, you know, masons, you know, acting in coordination with, you know, across state lines. And what it really did was um, masonry does survive it, but what happens is that masonry distance itself, distances itself from sort of what you would want to call the esoteric tradition and basically reemerges as basically a charity organization or, you know, a philanthropic organization. You, you know, that's the way, you know, masonry survives it, especially on the Blue Lodge level. You still have the higher degrees going on, but even that's somewhat, you know, I don't want to say dumbed down, but it's, 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 it's de-emphasized. Um, and, and it's this, you know, after the Morgan affair, it's this, um, you know, tradition that basically carries, you know, masonry out of the Morgan affair through the 19th century, through most of the 20th century. And it seems that of late, and I'm saying of late, probably within the last 10 years, that all of a sudden there seems to be this reemergence with masonry, that people are more interested in the esoteric symbolism, the esoteric tradition, um, you know, even the word, you know, occult, you know, the occult iconography with masonry. Right. Um, you know, this seems to be, you know, reemerging now within the last 10 years. You touched on this a little bit in, in one of your answers. Uh, one of the things that's come to the fore is, uh, and again, very likely as a result of popular culture, and I think you even mentioned it in some of the literature for your book, is things like national treasure. And there's certainly the feeling amongst uh, folks that uh, masonry had a lot to do with the architecture of our country, the U.S., uh, not only physically in the architecture of a city like Washington, D.C., but also in the architecture of the platitudes, the values, uh, the institutions that were put in place. Is all of that overblown, or is that very much accurate that uh, uh, masonry had a huge impact on the founding of the United States, both physically in terms of architecture in our nation's capital and also uh, in terms of its institutions? I agree with both. I, I think I, I document this in my book. If we're going to take the architecture, we'll just put that aside for a minute. But when you get into the founding of this country, like you were just saying, like the institutions, um, what you have really is, you know, you know, when it comes to the development of our Constitution, um, you have two things coming coming out of Blue Lodge Freemasonry, which are indisputable as far as I'm concerned. One is, um, and again, you have to know a little bit about Masonic history. Um, after the revolution, you know, after the revolution in our country, so we're talking around like you know the mid 1780s or something. You know, the founders decide to create a constitution. Well, where do they turn to? Well, in in the you know 1720s and the 1730s. Um, a Presbyterian minister named James Anderson publishes something called the Constitutions of Freemasonry. And, you know, this is sort of like your bylaws, your mythical history of Freemasonry. Um, there are two things that are coming out of that that are definitely being incorporated into the United States Comp- Constitution. Number one is, I mean, and this has been talked about before, is the concept of separation of church and state, that basically the state you know, the United States government is not going to endorse one specific religious tradition. It's basically going to be up to the individual person to decide or, or ultimately not to decide um, what religion they want to belong to. That 
comes directly out of Anderson's constitutions. He says in there basically in, in, in the constitutions of Freemasonry, I, I don't have a copy in front of me, but he says something to the effect of every Mason must decide his own religion and Masonry is basically deism. And, you know, it's not going to embrace one specific religious tradition. That's number one. Number two, and I document this in my book, is when you get into the United States government, it, you know, the, the government of our country is triple divided um, between an executive, a legislative, and a judicial. That comes straight out of Blue Lodge Freemasonry because the governance of a Blue Lodge is triple divided also between a worshipful master um, and his two wardens, a junior and senior warden. Um, the triple division of government in the United States um, is based on the triple division of government um, or the lodge management, if you will, by the master and his two wardens. Um, if you're wondering why it's triple divided within masonry, it has to do with the three phases of the sun, um, the rising sun, the sun at midday, and the setting sun. Um, that's really where you get into the concept of your triple division. If you get into the architecture of the country, Yes, again, you know, you're going to see stuff in your in the nation's capital. Um, you know, I, I, I describe in my book what I, I describe the, the federal district as what I call the city of the sun, um, where you got a lot of solar iconography. Of course, you know, the sun is probably the most important symbol within Freemasonry. Um, you have the Washington Monument obelisk, um, which is, you know, reflective of the Egyptian sun god Horus or Amun-Re. Um, you have the United States Capitol building, which um, has a dome on it. Um, this is a solar icon also um, coming out of the works of Vitruvius and carried forward by two Renaissance masters named Andre Palladio and um, Leon Alberti Batista. Um, they basically rework Vitruvius and say, if you're going to put a dome on a building, it's designating it as a chamber of the sun god Apollo. And its importance within the United States would be it's basically like a herald of like new age democracy, of new solar enlightenment, if you will. And the architects who are behind the uh, United States Capitol, people like Benjamin Henry Latrobe, Robert Mills, James Hoban, Lon Font, these guys are all Masons. They would have all been familiar with this. So, yeah, you know, when you get into the, you know, basically the philosophies of our country, the government and the actual architecture, you will definitely see a Masonic thumbprint without question. Now, when it comes to the notion of symbolism, many people think a lot of our national symbols are uh, drawn from masonry. For example, some people say the Great Seal of the United States. Is that overblown or is that true? It's The, the Great Seal is a very complex seal, um, and I get, into it, I get into it in depth in my book. It's a Masonic symbol, but it's, it's more what I would describe as a solar symbol than it is a, um, it, I mean, it definitely has Masonic connotations, but um, it, 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 uh, the, 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 the truncated pyramid with the eye, all-seeing eye is really a solar emblem. Um, the, the one thing I document, and this is a little getting into deep waters here, but I'm going to do my best to try to explain it is, um, and, you know, when you get into symbols and when you especially get into symbolism regarding the Great Seal, um, and I, you know, I, I get into this in the book, you have to remember that there are multiple levels to this. I mean, and w one level is what you would want to call your exoteric explanation, which is kind of your just base off the wall explanation. But then you have, you know, your deeper levels, as it were. When it gets into the Great Seal, um, the Masonic connotation comes in with the number 13, 
mm-hmm. um, and the Great Seal is replete with the number 13. Now, exoterically, I mean, I would agree that represents the 13 colonies, but what it really, you know, masonically represents is this 13th degree coming out of France called the Rite of Perfection. Um, that's the that's the name of the entire degree system, but it's the 13th degree, which is the Royal Arch of Enoch, which is the title of my book. And to make a long story really short, it, um, it, that, it is that degree, which I document in my book, which is probably one of the most important degrees in Freemasonry, which is the recovery of what's called the Tetragrammaton. Um, in plain speak, it's the name of God. Um, and it's basically, when you're getting into the concepts with the Great Seal, with this number 13, it's, 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 um, it's representing this 13th degree, the recovery of the name of God, and it's basically sort of what you would call investing the seal with this divine presence, if you will. It's complex material. I get into it much more in depth in the book. But, um, yes, there are Masonic connotations with, with the Great Seal. Now, as we get into this more, it, 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 um, on one hand, we appreciate all of your enlightenment. On the other hand, people may say, wow, there is a lot to this this Freemasonry, and maybe some of that stuff I've heard is right. I mean, overall, I'm sure you would agree, Masonry as it exists today is a force for good. Would you say that? Oh, yes. Um, what, what I, what I kind of say, what I've, I've been asked this question before, and what I sort of say is this, um, is I don't, I mean, I've been involved with it since 1997. I've never encountered anything negative with it at all. Um, what I would say to, to you and someone who kind of like is a little maybe alarmed by this is say, you know, alarmed by this, and say, oh, you know, oh, well, what's going on here? What I, what I've, what I've, the way I've answered this question before is when it comes to masonry and these symbols, you know, and the government, you know, and what we were just talking about with the triple division, um, what, what's going on is, is they're using these tools of Freemasonry and these symbols and the lesson and the morale lessons that they teach, the morality of things, you know, and again, we're talking, um, you know, we mentioned before that, you know, you know, Freemasonry is basically deism. It's 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 a belief in a supreme being. That being said, Freemasonry definitely embraces concepts relating to what you would call Judaic Christianity, such as faith, hope, and charity. No question about that. Mm-hmm. And what I've always maintained is, and what I say in the book is, um, and you know, I've said this in other interviews, is that basically when it comes to the United States is the founders are basically, you know, using the tools and the symbolic lessons, you know, and, you know, as, as nation building devices, if you will, um, you know, they're using these symbols and, and these, uh, you know, icons and these morality lessons of Freemasonry as tools of nation building. That's really the best way I can describe it. Now I do want to touch And again, this is the subject of the book, a large part of your book, um, the book of Enoch and, and how that ties in. Uh, I know we don't have a great deal of time, but I at least want to address that, uh, and give people an introduction to that part of the book. Cause that's certainly a very important part, uh, of the book. Can you talk about your findings in regard to the book and, of Enoch and, uh, Freemasonry? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, and this is a, a huge crux of the book, as you just mentioned, um, in a lot, I'm doing my best to, um, just delve right into this is in a nutshell the book of enoch is a book um it's left out of the bible um enoch is one of two people in the bible to never die a physical death the prophet elijah is the other and in the book of genesis enoch is taken up into heaven in corporeal form and it's basically he, he walks around the afterlife life in human in human form basically the book of enoch which dates from around um 350 um uh bce 
uh, documents what he sees in, in, you know, in heaven. And he sees some pretty interesting things. Um, and, you know, some things that definitely do not gel with what you would call Orthodox Christianity or even Orthodox Judaism. Um, the, the book, the book of Enoch is lost to history from around 2 Common Era, 2 AD, um, up until around the early 1700s, or 1770s, excuse me, when a Freemason and a traveler, a guy by the name of James Bruce, Bruce is traveling Ethiopia. He stumbles across a couple copies, and um, he returns to Europe with them. The, the copies go to the Bodleian Library at Oxford University, where they sit there untranslated until 1821, when they're finally translated into English. Um, what my book documents is this historical anomaly that this high-degree ritual being developed in France in the 1740s, 1750s as part of the rite of perfection. And th this, it is this rite which ultimately turns into, in America, what's called the Scottish rite and the York rite. But in a nutshell, um, the, the, the rite of perfection as it's being developed in France is actually incorporating elements um, and components of the Book of Enoch into the ritual. Um, the concepts relating to the discovery of the Tetragrammaton, the name of God, um, concepts relating to restoration of pre-flood um, pre of Noah knowledge, um, and it's, it, it is this historical anomaly because that, those elements technically should not be in that ritual because, as I just said, the Book of Enoch wasn't even translated into English until 1821, Yet someone back in the 1740s, 1750s clearly must have seen a copy of this thing or at least a very detailed summary of it. I propose in my book that this person is most likely a character in history named Andrew Michael Ramsey, who delivers this oration to Masonic Lodges in 1737. Um, and I suggest that it's most likely this character or this person in history who saw either a copy of this thing either a copy of the Book of Enoch or a very detailed summary of it, because this ritual is incorporating elements of the book which really should not be happening, um, like I said, because it's not even returned to Europe until the 1770s. And like I said, it just sits in the Bodleian until 1821 when it's finally translated into English. But clearly someone in France and Paris in the 1740s, 1750s saw a copy of this of this book already or... Um, saw a very highly detailed summary of it. So it's that historical anomaly that my book really delves into. And like I said, you know, it, it's, it's this ritual, it's this degree ceremonial, this royal arch, this recovery of the name that I, I propose is this, you know, very penultimate important degree, which is really helping define a lot of symbolo symbol symbology within masonry, and especially the symbology associated with the United States. And uh, when you talk about symbolism, um, you even touch on the Statue of Liberty uh, and its um, significance as maybe a Masonic symbol. Yeah, um, you've got a lot going on with Lady Liberty there. Um, all the people in France who are planning it um, are uh, Masons. Um, the the uh, Batoli and Laboulaye are both Masons. You've got the guy in America who does the pedestal, Morris. He's a Mason. Um, it's actually a gift. Um, they, they, the, the, the Statue of Liberty, the original statue, was actually a gift to the Egyptians, um, and they, they passed on it. Um, and you got a lot of Egyptian iconography, um, you know, you know, with, Liber with Lady Liberty. 
um, you know, it's a pagan goddess. Um, it definitely incorporates elements of a of a uh, of a uh, goddess, uh, Egyptian goddess named Shashat, who is a female counterpart of a another Egyptian god named Thoth. Um, she is a sacred goddess of geometry, and of course, geometry is very symbolic within um, masonry. You have a lot going on with um, the Statue of Liberty, incorporating the number seven. Um, and I suggest in my book that um, the number seven reflects what ultimately becomes the seventh degree of the York Rite, which is, of course, the Royal Arch degree. Um, so, yeah, you definitely have a lot of, you know, you know, Masonic, you know, quasi-Masonic Egyptian concepts relating to sacred geometry, the number seven, your Royal Arch symbology, um, you know, coming coming out of Lady Liberty. And uh, Hollywood's taken notice uh there, uh, I think you make the point that there's a lot of symbolism in Hollywood movies uh, as it relates to uh, uh, masonry these days. Yeah, um, you've got a lot going on. Um, I have the final chapter of the book um, details what you would call some Masonic symbology in popular movies, um, also some solar symbology in popular movies. Um, you get into concepts we mentioned earlier about the first National Treasure movie, um, the first National Treasure movie with Nicolas Cage is really a uh, retelling, if you will, of the Royal Arch ceremonial. Um, and if you, if you don't know what the, the, the Royal Arch degree is about, I'll just summarize it real quick. Um, it has to do with the recovery of what's called the lost word of a master mason. Um, it's, it's in the third degree. This is your Blue Lodge. Um, there, the, there, there's a character in the, in, in the third degree called Hiram Abiff who possesses the secret name of God. Uh, to make a long story short, he's killed, and the word is lost. But it's in this royal arch degree that the name is recovered. Um, here, Mephith's lost word is recovered, and it's recovered on this holy ground um, on the Temple Mount where they're trying to rebuild the second temple, um, you know, where King Solomon's temple sat. And it, they discover this hidden underground treasure vault, which contains the name of God. Um, this, this is basically a, you know, this is the first national tre- treasure movie where they're looking for, you know, the secret underground vault, you know, which is on the holy ground. You know, I think it was Trinity College in, in New York was where it was. Um, you know, it's, it's the same, it's the same principles. It's the same retelling. Um, you get into things like the Da Vinci Code uh, movie, um, the first one. Um, you know, the, the, that that movie is replete. And I get into it real specifically with the book is replete with um, iconography and symbolism again relating to the number thirteen, um, and this is again your your, your reference to your thirteenth degree, um, you know, in the rite of perfection, which is your royal arch degree. Um, so yes, you know, Hollywood, you know, it's it's very popular with Hollywood. Um, you know, you get the Being There movie um, with with Peter Sellers and Shirley MacLaine, where you have solar iconography with the uh, Sellers character, who's the gardener talking about the equinoxes, the solstices, about how the sun comes up and down and you replant and winter comes, you know, and again, this ties into masonry with, you know, the sun, the sun being the most important um, icon of masonry. And then, of course, you've got the guy at the end who's sort of this, uh, you know, you know, quasi-Masonic puppet master, Rand, being put into the tomb, which is, you know, the great seal of the United States, which is your truncated pyramid. Um, yeah, so yeah, you definitely have uh, Masonic iconography within popular movies in Hollywood. 
So in closing, could you give us maybe some thoughts from Mason? I know you've given some of them earlier in the discussion here, but some thoughts of just setting the record straight and giving some people um, some clarity on the concept of uh, of Freemasonry. Yeah, I mean it's a um, it's a philanthropic you know it's a fraternity it's a philanthropic organization does a lot of charity work. It was founded in 1717. Um, it you know it, it teaches um, you know it embraces concepts of faith, hope, and charity. Um, it, it definitely contains secrets. There's no question about that. Although I, I propose in my book these secrets are more allegorical and are being encoded in the rituals and symbols. Then there is actual, you know, written down knowledge, if you will. Um, you know, you're, you're dealing with, you know, in the, in the concept of Masonic rituals, um, you know, you're dealing with themes of um, um, solar resurrection, of, you know, you know, definitely elements of mysticism. Um, I don't think it's anything negative or anything. I just think it's, you know, going, it's, it's trying to maintain this sort of, you know, lost tradition, if you will. Um, you know, some people maintain that it goes back to the mystery traditions. I kind of tie it into that. I really don't dispute that. Um, you know, it's definitely incorporating elements of it. There's no question about that. Um, you know, and again, when you get into the concept of the United States, a lot of the founding fathers, you know, Washington, you know, Franklin, you got guys like Daniel Carroll. Um, these are, you know, Freemasons who are, you know, helping, you know, found the country development. And what they're doing is, you know, and Lafayette's another one. And we mentioned the architects earlier, like Latrobe Mills, um, Hoban, people like that. Um, you know, they're turning to the working tools and the symbols of Freemasonry is what you would want to call nation-building devices. It's the, really the best way I can describe it. And, um, you know, you know, they're trying to incorporate elements of, um, you know, you know, masonry, you know, concepts of um, brotherhood, universal, you know, universal equality, liberty in, into, you know, the nation's capital, um, into the Constitution. Um, I guess people, some people see it as evidence of a dark conspiracy. I really don't see it that way. But it's, um, you know, I mean, it's there. I mean, I document it in the book and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's where they're trying to incorporate these, you know, universal principles of equality coming out of Freemasonry, which is in turn coming out of the Enlightenment and the Renaissance tradition, um, you know, into these symbols and this iconography within the country. Well, we certainly thank you for your time. It's been a fascinating discussion, Robert. Where can people go and find the book, The Royal Ark of Enoch, The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism? The, the, the most easiest way to find it is through my website, um, which is um, Um Again, that's www.robertwsullivan, with two L's, IV.com. And I say IV, that's the letter I and the letter V, because I'm the fourth. Um, there's links there to purchase the book. It's on Kindle. It's on Nook. It's on the Apple iBookstore. You can buy the oversized paperback um, if you want a print copy of it. Um, there's a link there that says buy the book, which will direct you. You know, it's on Amazon. You can buy it from my publisher. Um, it's on Kindle Nook. It's in all the ebook formats. And that's by far and away the easiest place to uh, go and purchase it. All right. Well, Robert W. Sullivan IV, thank you so much for joining us tonight on The Conspiracy Corner. Thank you. And thank you for tuning into the show. We hope that you found it insightful and interesting. And we'll talk to you next time. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye.